Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kanan Ren's Sound of Play 147. Wednesday in Sound Up Play, we bring you some of our and your favorite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. Joining me, Ryan Heyman, in Sound of Play 147 is a guest from the community. This is Case Jernigan. Hi, Ryan. How's it going? Hey, I'm, I'm doing well. How are, how are you doing today? Can't complain. Everything's great. Happy to be on. Now, you are located in New York. You don't have the uh, distinctive New York accent, though. That's true. Uh, I was born in South Carolina, of Mm. all places, but I've been in New York for the past eight years or so. Okay. So it's it's your home now. You know, you've you've settled in. People always have that debate. How long do you have to be in New York before you're a New Yorker? (laughs) It used to be 10 years was kind of the standard, but I think people have relaxed that a little bit. (laughs) New Yorkers do get very, I don't want to say precious about it, but they get very protective over the term New Yorker. (laughs) Totally. It's a little much. There's a lot of cities where it's like, hey, if you've passed through, you can count yourself as a uh, honorary Santa Fe Ian. Exactly. New York makes you earn everything, you know, just finding space on the sidewalk. You've got to fight for that as well. Before we get to the music that we came into the podcast with, let's, uh, let's hear a little bit about, about you and your background. Uh, when you were introducing yourself to us originally, you kind of led with some of the, uh, video and, and film work that you've done. Now you've done a lot of animation and particularly stop motion type of animation, uh, which has its place in the video game world, certainly. But uh, I'm, I'm interested in learning about that and then also how that kind of relates to your interest in games in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was trained as a painter, uh, oil painting. Um, I've been drawing since I was a little kid. And uh, it was about maybe three or four years ago, I had some some guests in my studio and they were looking at some of my paper cutouts and collages that I was making. Mm-hmm. And I remember this guy just said to me, you have to find a way to make these move. And the thought had never even really crossed my mind to move into animation because I think it had always been in my head that it's just so difficult. And where mm-hmm. do you start? Um, didn't have any training, but I just, I kind of set about um, shooting things and messing around and 
before I knew it. That's kind of what I was spending most of my time doing. Now, as a painter, I have to remember last year in the Academy Awards, I think there was a f- animated film that was painted frame by frame. Is that uh, a film about oh, are you talking? Are you talking about the Van Gogh yeah, movie? Yeah. That, I still haven't seen it, actually. <laughs> that sounds like a crazy undertaking. And I mean, animation, as you said, already feels like a hugely intimidating thing to do just based on the amount of drawings or in your case, cut out figures and um, shapes that you would have to line up frame by frame. But yeah, I can't even imagine the amount of time it takes to paint a painting to do that. Yes. 24 times a second. <laughs> it is incredibly laborious. And I haven't seen the Van Gogh movie, but mm-hmm. when I remember when I saw the preview for it, I was like, oh no, they did not torture <laughs> some poor, poor souls to paint all of these frames. But apparently it was pretty great to watch. So maybe I'll still have to check it out. Seems like I, I'm interested in as well. I, should, I wish I had come in with that uh, prepared and ready to talk about. But uh, <laughs> so you said that you were originally scared away from animation because of how laborious the whole process seems. Have you found in your time as an animator that it is as intimidating as it looked? Yes. But the thing <laughs> that I will say, the thing that I will say, though, is that when I first started thinking about animating, a lot of what I had in my mind, it was animation of such an unbelievable scale, like Japanese films like Akira or Ghost in the Shell mm-hmm. or um, like Wallace and Gromit or even the the cartoons and animations from my youth or Disney films. And they're just such massive teams making those types of productions. And it didn't really didn't make sense for me to kind of compare myself to that sort of work. So I try and think of animation as more of another tool for for my artistic ideas. And I let some of the technical things just kind of slide me by and try not to worry about them as much. If that, Am I making any sense with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, now, a lot of these bigger projects, the, the big grand scale feature length movies um, are made with enormous teams. And the, 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 the behind the scenes features that you would see on a lot of the Disney movies is... Uh, really fascinating just the number of people that are that dedicate their years of their life to just little tiny aspects of this film and then all their work comes together and um, you know eventually becomes the the finished product that you see Uh, Mm. but do you tend to work with teams or do you like to work alone and uh, kind of guide your own vision in that way i am very much a solitary fellow and uh it's difficult for me to collaborate sometimes just because I, I wanted, I got into art making because I wanted to just flesh out my own ideas and interests. But I, I do have a couple of people I work with. Um, one of my friends is a sound designer and works in a studio here in New York. And he and I will collaborate and he'll make a lot of the sound design for some of my short films and for some of our commission work. And I have another friend who's an animator who lives in New Orleans and he and I have kind of traded work back and forth, but everything is still kept quite separate. Our last project that we did together, it was like he made a scene and then I made the scene after that. And then we traded. Um, I've never really worked on like the same frame with another animator. Just looking through your portfolio, you have a rather diverse uh, set of styles that you seem to be comfortable animating in. Uh, How would you describe your your personal style, your, your kind of trademark look or the, the through line that kind of guides all of the work that you do. Oh man, 
I, I wish I had it <laughs> a nice, easy, like elevator answer for you. I would say my, I mean, my work, the, the primary influence has always been painting, painting from the Renaissance all the way through to Degas and Manet, and of course, de Kooning and more contemporary painters. So I, I always think about composition in terms of making a painting. And then from there, I've always been interested in comics and Japanese animation and anime and of course games. So the the structure of those things, the the way comics and games are delineated and composed, I think mm -hmm. that's something that I'm always working with. Mm. But drawing is drawing has always been the basis. So I use a lot of line work, um, a lot of kind of monochrome drawing in my animation and my studio work. And now as somebody who came out of painting and uh, just looking at some of your animation work, it seems that you're very cognizant of the the frame and taking advantage of the you know, negative space around the points of focus and the, you know, how everything relates to the larger frame that it's uh, a part of, you know, very compositionally minded from that high level and of every frame of painting, as they say. Um, mm -hmm. Now, video games are very different because while there are a lot of tricks that they use to make each moment in games look you know like an intentionally framed shot and there's a lot of um, a lot of games that take shortcuts that lock the camera in a position like resident evil um, and there's a lot of games that have you know relatively limited uh realms of of camera movement like the 2d side scrollers um can kind of only pan back and forth uh, but in a lot of video games there's a lot of freedom to disrupt the framing of a shot and the composition of what you're looking at. Would that drive you crazy as a painter to work in that realm or is unlock like another interesting challenge to you? Yeah, I think I love that actually. And that's something that I always, that kind of idea of um, working within constraints mm -hmm. always comes out in my own work. And I'll find that I'm working at a certain scale and you're stuck and you can't quite figure out what the problem is. And generally my problems are scale related. So then I'll kind of reconstruct and expand the surface mm -hmm. I'm working on or, or contract it and crop it. And I think video games, especially really well composed and structured games, they're always, they're always kind of doing that. And the, the objects are always, they feel nice in their relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that I'm always thinking about objects in space, objects in relationship to each other. I remember I, I had this art teacher when I was in art school and he's completely obsessed with space and all of his courses, you're always drawing space. So there'd be these elaborate still life setups or models in an interior, all kinds of props and things that he's found and assembled together. And you spend the entire time just working through the negative space of all of these objects. And whenever someone settles in on the features of the model or gets detailed and starts drawing like individual fingers on a hand, he'd come over and chastise you and make you rub it all out <laughs> so that you're just thinking big picture, which it's so frustrating when you're an artist and you just want to be a little self-indulgent, but it's also, it's pretty crucial. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, the first game that you introduce some music from 
uh, is one that kind of locks the the camera's view into mm-hmm. you know fairly predictable patterns and and shapes and everything. Uh, but there's also something that's really I mean appropriately alien about all of the shapes. There's something just because of the earlier hardware. It seems like everything that you look at is um, kind of up to interpretation, like what you see in mm-hmm. all the shapes and all the the smudges and colors and everything. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's certainly an aspect of structure and a, a lot of freedom to the artistic design of Metroid on the NES. What is mm-hmm. it that uh, originally drew you to this game? Well, I think what originally drew me to the game was that it scared me. Mm-hmm. I was a very little kid and I remember I was on the playground and my friend had gotten this new game and uh, I was like, well, tell me about this game. What's the deal with this game? And he says, it's scary. And I couldn't quite picture what that meant because the other games that I'd been playing were, you know, Donkey Kong in the arcade or original Mario for NES. So I couldn't quite picture that. But when I rented the game and it was late at night and I was very young playing this game and uh, the ambiance that the game created and sort of what you're saying, the kind of alien colors and textures, it really just, it struck me. And the game is, the game has kind of followed me ever since. Do you find a sense of danger in games to be necessary for it to be scary? Or are there other ways that a game can kind of get under your skin? Yeah, I think atmosphere is probably more key than danger, especially for my my young little mind at the time. Um, There was more a sense of just not knowing what was around a certain corner. There's a, a lot of games where the threat of death kind of keeps you like the original legend of zelda um i found it at least to be rather difficult at portions and sometimes that would uh you know make me think twice before just kind of blindly jaunting out into the middle of a field when i didn't know what was uh you know how a certain enemy type was going to behave yeah i mean metroid is a difficult game and i I was just wondering if if it was an easier game where the threat of death wasn't kind of always you know, knocking at the door, do you think that would take away some of the the fear or is the, just the sound design and the music and the visuals enough to um, pull you in regardless of if you ever died or not? I wish I could go play the original Metroid without having ever played a Metroid game mm, before yeah. just to see what that's like um, because it's just such a, a well-crafted experience. I think when I was a kid, it was definitely, it was those rich blacks yeah. and those green, those greens and kind of acidic yellow colors. Um, I think it just, it struck in my mind about the unknown and what was scary. And I guess that was, that was space. You know, I lived in my little neighborhood, you know, there's gravity, this is all familiar and something about this game, it really, it, it touched me and the music was a huge piece of that. Of course, this is the title theme that was composed by Hirokazu Hip Tanaka. Uh, now, this is an interesting piece of music. It's it's a lot more dynamic than a lot of NES music is. And that's, of course, not to uh, put NES music down. It's wonderful. We play it all the time. But this one goes to a, a lot more... Um, I guess it changes up the flow and the sound especially more than I'm used to hearing on the NES. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. I think what I really like about it as well is that it has um, it has that kind of pulsing quality to yeah. create the tension. 
But then it also has this lovely little melodic bit that it just feels good. Yeah, there's a lot of a uh, lot of variety in that one. The whole soundtrack is like almost like it's alive. That's uh, mm-hmm. it's a good one. Well, let's move on to our next track here. This is another game where you control a uh, female in space. That's that's a good linking factor. Um, very <laughs> different game though. This is from Headlander, which I have played some tracks from before. Uh, just to reiterate, this is a game where you play. I have not played the game, so this is based on my kind of loose understanding of the game. You play a decapitated astronaut, specifically the head of that astronaut that can fly around and attach to other bodies and just do everything that a head could do in space, theoretically. Uh, But the piece that I want to play today is called Procession of the White Queen. This is composed by David Gregory Earle, and like the rest of the soundtrack, it sounds really wonderful, Um, but I was just drawn in because I really like when there's reinterpretation, especially of uh, classical music. This is a uh, reinterpretation of Purcell's music for the funeral of Queen Mary, um, the the first part of that suite of music. And you will likely know it better probably from uh, the opening of A Clockwork Orange or the opening of Conker's Bad Fur Day. <laughs> depending on what uh, highbrow or lowbrow media you like. (laughs) I love Conquer. That's not to put him down, of course. Um, But yeah, I just love, it's just a really rich sound to it. And it's just, um, I I don't know. I just find the whole soundtrack really lovely. Uh, We will play the procession of the white queen.
next track that we have is a request from the forum. This comes from Todinho, who says, Just fell in love with this track from the King of Fighters 14 demo. Uh, this is called Team Yagami Theme by Daisuke Ishiwatari. Yeah, this piece of music is really cool because it's very um, brass-driven, has a very strong percussive piece. It's really catchy. It's a it's a good piece of fighting game music. I know that fighting game music can literally be everything. Like, I mean, we've had smooth jazz on uh, Marvel vs. Capcom 2. I think as soon as that threshold's been crossed you're pretty much fair to include any type of music in fighting <laughs> games. Uh, but this one is, I would say, quintessential fighting game music. It's got saxophone, the drums, the blazing guitars, like everything that you could ever want to hear to get your your blood pumping. Uh, do you play many fighting games? You know, I haven't played a fighting game in a very long time, but um, I will occasionally, there's a retro arcade near my apartment mm-hmm. and my wife and I will go and they have... Street Fighter 2 Arcade, Mortal Kombat 3, a couple of other games like that. So we'll occasionally mess around with some of those, but I I haven't really stayed up to date. So I guess from my experience, a lot of animation enthusiasts get really into fighting games because of the kind of level of artistry and animation that goes into the sprite animations, especially. Oh, totally. Because that's basically the meat of the game. Like that's the most important thing is how... Uh, how easily you can read the character movements and everything. And so a lot of care goes into that. So, uh, you know, it, it draws its its fair share of animators. <laughs> Some of the older pixely fighting games, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Street Fighter 2 or whatever, that's the one that sticks in my head because I probably played it the most as a kid. The genius little gaps in between frames to show you, mm-hmm. to show the motion of, I don't know, Chun-Li's kick flurry or Ryu spinning through the air, uh, it's technically really, really fantastic. Um, it's so it's so highly edited. Um, so yeah, I hear what you're saying. I totally, I can totally get into that. Um, with some of the more modern fighters, whether it's like these extreme Marvel Capcom games, I get a little lost in the flurry of combos and things. Yeah, I think when fighting games transitioned into 3D and using 3D models, a lot of the animators kind of went, um, not went back, but kind of transitioned into animating fighting game characters the way that you would animate any other character. And uh, there's, um, on on YouTube, there's one particular animator who's gotten kind of famous for criticizing the animation of NetherRealm Studios' uh, Mortal Kombat and Injustice games uh, mm-hmm. on the uh, Sugar Punch Design Works channel, if I remember that correctly, saying that this is okay animation for a 3D game, but this isn't this isn't serving the purpose of that you would need the animation to serve in a 2D fighting game. Mm-hmm. And lately there's been a bit of a renaissance in animating 3D models like they were 2D characters in the most recent King of Fighters in uh, Guilty Gear Exert mm. series and the Dragon Ball Fighter Fighters, I think it is pronounced. Um, so it, it's interesting to see some of those old school philosophies improving the work that they're able to do with, um, I guess I would posit better tools. I think that's fair to mm. say. Yeah, I've heard really good things about the new Dragon Ball game. I haven't played it yet, but um, I think when when certain animators have such a level of technical skill sometimes the 
the ingenuity gets lost or the uh, the willingness to draw things in a different way or to one thing I've kind of noticed lately too is that people are not willing to sort of skip frames and show you less mm, to give you yeah. more feeling. And I've definitely noticed that the most in um, like FIFA games mm. and some other sports games in their desire to show you every single frame of like foot connecting with ball, ball soaring through air, hitting the net. Um, it just, it becomes um, mechanical almost. Mm. And I feel like in some older games, older sports games, older tennis games, even because there are fewer frames, you, you have a more, there's an immediacy, which is more probably the way your eye actually perceives like really mm. fast motion happening in space. So in fighting games in particular, the Dragon Ball fighters that we were talking about uh, just now, uh, the animators actually slowed down a lot of the special moves to 13 frames per second, I believe it was, because mm. that was the speed at which it was animated during the anime TV show that it was based on. And oh, it was just kind of to recapture that look, to make it look more authentic to the TV show. Sometimes that kind of 12 frames is kind of, that's sort of a sweet spot. And I think one of the things that you have to remember when it comes to animating in 2D versus 3D is that a lot of the tools, you know, they, they do, they have different tasks that, or they have different uh, aspects of the animation journey that they're good at and some things that it's very, very difficult to achieve. And so, you know, whereas, um, a lot of old fighting games that utilize sprite art, uh, had some amazing use of, of kind of bending and stretching and, uh, getting very cartoony physics off of uh, mm -hmm. some of the characters and their movements to kind of accentuate the the movements that they're doing. The the bending and stretching isn't as easy with 3D models and and skeletons that are rigged to behave like regular True. humans and you know with physics models attached to them. So you know really just kind of rediscovering a lot of these old techniques in um, in in these new tool sets and some of the work that. Arc System Works has done with uh, Guilty Gear, especially, has been really eye-opening to you know some of the um, you know, perhaps the future of of 3D animation in general. It's it's cool to see them experiment game to game. Cool, yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, everything comes full circle eventually, right? Anyways, let's listen to the Team Yagami theme from The King of Fighters 14. <laughs> Thank you. 
coming back with another request from the forum. This comes from the Green Flea, who says, Cave Story was the first throwback game I remember playing. A college friend told me about it when we lived in the same dorm. Although it was originally in Japanese, the site from which I acquired it had a patch to translate the entire game into English. At this time, the game was free to download, and I still have the same files on an external hard drive. The game is fantastic. Great platforming, a touching story, upgradable weapons, secrets to discover, and multiple endings. As with some of the other more recent games in this throwback genre, it was all created, music, graphics, and all, by one person, Pixel. The track I have chosen acts twofold. One, as a later level in the game, but more importantly as the title screen when the game starts. I opened and played this game so much that I just get excited hearing the opening chords, knowing such a grand experience is about to begin. Yeah, this is a uh, familiar piece of music to a lot of you, I'm sure. This is the opening theme from Cave Story, from Daisuke Pixel Amaya, uh, on uh, Studio Pixel's very famous Cave Story, which has been released on numerous platforms, uh, originally on the PC for free, and then uh, most recently on the Switch for, uh, yeah, definitely not free, but it's not going to break the bank either. I know it's not the first indie game to ever come out, obviously, because there was this whole scene of uh, the whole mod scene in uh, Europe and a lot of independent creators in Japan uh, that predated this by uh, decades. But this game kind of came at a time at which the current indie game scene was starting to rise up um i think it predated braid by quite a few years but it, it is all it all feels like it's kind of looped together in one moment in history and uh there's i mean there's a lot to like obviously they're still releasing it and people are still discovering it and loving it these days and uh, the game is being reinterpreted uh, different art styles in different um, musical covers and um and it's interesting to see this game, this singular game, kind of evolve from platform to platform over the years. Now, Case, do you get into the indie game scene at all? I have been lately because I have a Switch. And so That's a I actually place just. For that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's been really fun. So I've been, I played in the past year Shovel Knight, Celeste, um, I played Cave Story Plus. I'm really enjoying it. I wasn't sure how I would feel. I haven't. I sort of have this gap in my gaming education, where after I was about before before I went to college, I um I sort of stopped playing games. I'm still not exactly sure why, but I didn't play games for about ten years, and then just in the past two years, I, I refound my old Super Nintendo with all of my games, and that sort of got me back into it and. Then I had heard about the Switch coming out, and I've always been such a Nintendo fan that got a Switch, and now I'm I'm hugely into it. So I'm I'm discovering a lot of games that I formerly didn't really know anything about, and Cave Story was one of them. Mm, yeah, that's a good lineup there too with uh, Celeste and Shovel Knight. Yeah, I played Stardew Valley for like 200 hours as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seems to be a pretty common story. There's not a lot of like people that are just so and so on. Uh, on uh, stardew valley they either give it up really quickly or they play 200 hours yeah as you it said. really su- it really sucks you in now celeste as we were talking about before is a really good example of a game with very simple 
sprites, but you can always tell exactly what they're thinking. And I don't really know how they do it, but just like every sprite is drawn so uh, expressively, but you mm-hmm. know, oftentimes emitting most of the features of the face. Like they, they really pull a lot out of, uh, you know, very, um, very simple sprites. Yeah. I, I love those sprites. I, I actually, I can almost do away with the, uh, more detailed illustrated, mm, yeah. like illustrations of the characters, facial expressions and things. I feel like I get far more out of the, of the sprites and body language and things like that. And even the text bubbles are animated in the, I guess, whatever weird engine they have to represent mm-hmm. the sound of their voices off, is mm-hmm. often very expressive as well. And just uh, a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, love went into that game, obviously, <laughs> but we're going to talk about cave story. You said that you've played this one, uh, recently as well. Do you know if this was a version that was rather true to the original graphics and music or whether it was upgraded for the switch? I think this version is pretty souped up actually. Okay. Um, because I've, I, I really enjoyed the soundtrack myself. And so I've listened to the soundtrack while working some in the studio and while playing through certain tracks, I've come across some of the, the original recordings as well. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've definitely played the, the newer version. Okay. Cool. And how did you get on with the game in general? I really liked it a lot. Confession, I still haven't beaten it. I'm really struggling with the final boss. There are several stages there. And I kind of keep getting my butt kicked. I think that's okay. When I was playing it a few years back, I remember hitting a few pretty significant difficulty spikes as well. Yeah. So I've, I've sort of put it down for the moment, but I'm taking a trip soon and I have a feeling I'm going to, I'm going to jump back in there and try and beat it. Yeah. It's a, it's a good time for that. Especially if you're on an airplane or, or something, you just have to sit mm-hmm. there for a while. Uh, anyways, this is the opening theme from Cave Story.
So you were talking about your Super NES collection, which you unearthed rather recently, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of pulled you back into the world of gaming. Now, yep. Earthbound is uh, the the game that you've selected this next piece of music from. Was this a recent addition to your library? Because I know that Earthbound wasn't hugely popular when it was still new, so to speak. It, it was considered kind of a financial flop, at least in the American region. It was, but I actually am very fortunate to have my original cartridge from when I was a kid. Oh, very nice. That's worth something these days. <laughs> it is. It's because actually I went, there's a little retro shop, um, downtown Manhattan that I go to occasionally. Mm-hmm. And I, before I had kind of re I had unearthed, um, my old cartridges and things that were at my father's house. I uh, had gone into the shop a few times thinking about, um, maybe buying a super Nintendo and buying earthbound. Cause I kind of, I wanted to play some of these games over again, but I mean, they were selling earthbound for like close to $300. Wow. I was like, this, <laughs> this is no way not happening. So, and then patience paid off and I, I unearthed this stuff at my dad's house. So now I've got my original copy. Yeah, that's, that's really valuable. Does it have an old save file? It has my old save file. Yeah. <laughs> the battery has not died. Some of my, a couple of my other cartridges, the batteries have conked out and can't save properly with them, but Earthbound has my save file. Did you continue with your save file or did you start over? I started fresh. Okay. But I did, uh, when I beat it this next time through, I did go back and play the old file mm. a little bit just to see how I, how I measured up against my old self. Yeah. Pretty close. <laughs> Because I was thinking that there's one particular moment at the end that I think would have been kind of either magical or hugely unnerving if you didn't remember giving the game a certain piece of information at the beginning of the game. (laughs) Anyways, Earthbound. Now this track is called Tessie. I'm having a hard time remembering where this was in the game though. Is this the creature you would ride around? Uh, the, the aquatic dinosaur like creature? Yes. You only take one ride with Tessie, as I recall. And it's, uh, when you're, when you're controlling Jeff Mm. and he, he hitches a ride on Tessie. It is kind of inexplicable, but sort of (laughs) lovely. Most of the things in the game. So (laughs) good point. Good point. (laughs) Yep. They're just, they're all these, um, kind of explorer types hanging around looking for essentially the Loch Ness monster. And you as Jeff just get mm-hmm. to this certain point where you need to cross this body of water. And there is a bubblegum blowing monkey for some <laughs> reason. And you and this monkey hop on Tessie. So the weirdness of the game is what attracts a lot of people. Uh, there's also you know some really good stories and a lot of kind of surprisingly deep philosophical moments in there as well. Uh, mm-hmm. What is it that kind of initially drew you to Earthbound when you were a kid, and then what interested you the most when you came back so many years later? Well, I always loved playing RPGs, but I'd mostly played kind of Final Fantasy games. Mm-hmm. And so I was so used to this kind of medieval technology kind of environment. And then when I booted up Earthbound for the first time, you are just in a typical suburban house and you were part of a kind of typical suburban family. And uh, it the kind of connectivity of being roughly the same age as this kid and mm. leaving leaving the home and going on a big journey 
it really, really got me. And I just love the characters, love the writing. Yeah. So much of the writing, especially from those old JRPGs, it's so bad. It's so <laughs> it's so corny. But uh, the writing in Earthbound is just, it's stellar. It's funny. And so when I went back and replayed it, I was, I was hoping I didn't have that moment where I played something from my childhood that meant so much and felt kind of disappointed yeah. in it. But I didn't. I was loving every single minute of it. I was really relishing it and still still cracked me up, still fun, still love it. Yeah, the writing is really smart. It feels like it's a lot smarter than it needed to be, which is great, of course. But, uh, you know, it's one of those where it definitely has something for the older audiences as well. Um, probably more than you would have caught on to as a little kid. Definitely. Yeah, you... you you miss out when you're a kid on a lot of the innuendo and the puns. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the way that we should approach all of our art forms is put too much into it, you know? Mm. And if only a small percentage of people can figure out all of the references or connect to them, that's fine. But just, I don't know. That's what I, that's one thing I just loved about this game is that it, it shot really high. Yeah, that's one of the things that I learned from uh, Mystery Science Theater, actually, is that, you know, they they have such a such a fast pace of, of jokes that they're delivering, but they did it in a very, like, in a way that doesn't draw attention to any single joke. And so if mm-hmm. you don't get something, it just feels like part of the conversation. But if you do get something, it feels like that much more personal. Uh, yes. So, yeah, I guess when you... When you're not afraid of your audience missing out on yes. you know, knowing what you're talking about, if you and if you don't like shame them for missing out, then uh, you can you can hide a lot of sure. really personal stuff in there that people will really connect to or just uh, gloss over if it's not for them. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Hit them with an absolute wealth of material and let <laughs> people let people glean what they feel like gleaning or what they can. So the piece of music, Tessie, uh, did you choose this because of the attachment you had to the moment in the game, or is there something about the music itself that stood out to you? Well, it, it kind of starts with this kind of wonderful swaying wave noises mm-hmm. that I guess are supposed to be kind of symbolic of Tessie out there in the water and coming up to the shore. And then it has a, a sort of pulsing quality. And I feel like so much of Earthbound's music has that pulsing kind of heartbeat feeling very warm um like when you win a battle or when you go to the sanctuary locations there's always this warmth to the music and i feel like this tessie piece definitely has that and it's a it's kind of a heartwarming little sequence jeff is all by himself the the kind of boarding school that he goes to is Mm -hmm. really a bit sad and uh there aren't many students there and there's snow on the ground Mm -hmm. This magical moment with Tessie, I think when I was a kid, it just really, uh, it felt great. Mm. It was like a nice, a nice little dream come true little moment. Yes, this is Tessie by Keiichi Suzuki and Hirokazu Tanaka, as we heard from earlier. This is from Earthbound on the Super NES. Thank you. 
That was Earthbound, also known as Mother 2, we should mention, in its original Japanese release. Alright, we are going to a very different uh, game now. This next piece of music comes from Rogue Legacy. This is a piece that I picked out called Whale Shark, and that is uh, with periods in between each of the words. Uh, this was composed by a shell in the pit, and I can't say that I have that much to say about the music or the game. I just kind of like the song, but uh, there's something about Rogue Legacy. I, I do like the game a lot more than I expected, actually, um, because it seems like it's it's one of those roguelites where you're supposed to you know, just push into this this castle and uh, get a little bit further every time, but expect to die a lot. And usually you learn a lot of deep arcane systems and, and methods to circumvent challenges and find shortcuts to later in the dungeon. And, you know, it's just sometimes these uh, roguelite games feel like a bit of a war of attrition. Um, but I found Rogue Legacy to actually be pretty rewarding on every step of the journey, which is huge on the roguelite uh spectrum uh i i really enjoyed just you know the act of uh act of running around the dungeon and uh swatting my sword at all kinds of ener- enemies it's just a lot of fun uh but one of the interesting points that i'll make about it is that it feels like the designers really put a lot of themselves into it um you can tell that they were working on it for many years. And this was like their core pursuit for the time that they were working on it because there's a lot of ancillary things that don't quite fit into the game that are kind of pasted in there anyways, just because almost like a, uh, like a photo album, like this is just like the record of the years of development. And that is what they were creating and interested in. And they thought, hey, you know, we made this cool thing. Why not just uh, throw it in the Rogue Legacy somewhere? And um, it, it just feels really personal in that way. It feels like, you know, a bit, I guess you can call it sloppy for not sticking to the vision necessarily, for putting a hmm. bunch of stuff in there that kind of distracts from the, the, the main guiding vision of the game. But there's something that just feels so honest and so human about that as well that uh i i end up really liking that stuff and it um you know it it adds a kind of a fourth wall breaking extra bit of uh insight into the designers as well and i i think a lot of that is in the music because um it's a very eclectic soundtrack and none of it sounds like the type of music that you would expect to hear in a game you know, set in a, in a castle, this is, uh, you know, it's not period appropriate. It's not even really genre appropriate. Um, this piece whale shark is, I believe the piece that you would hear over the ending of the game. I've never gotten to the ending because it's a very difficult roguelite, but, um, it's, uh, it's also selectable at points throughout the game. And I think there are other versions of it as well. You can trigger, them in uh like jukeboxes or whatever the in-game equivalent are um but yeah it's just uh it's a weird piece i would never pick rogue legacy out of a lineup if i just heard this piece of music in isolation and had to associate it with a game but uh i i don't know i just like the song and now case do you put um do you ever find yourself in that position where you're working on a project for so long that you can't really help but kind of incorporate other 
aspects of your life into your creation, even if they're not like fully appropriate for the work? Or do you tend to like really stick to the vision and prune whatever is not necessary? I cannot stick to the original vision. <laughs> I I am so self-indulgent. I want to put whatever I'm interested in at the time into my work. And so when you were describing that element of this game, even though I've never played it, it kind of made me excited mm, um, yeah. because I like, I like seeing when people are, are excited about something and they just kind of go for it. You know, there's occasionally pushback when people, uh, the Mary Sue or the Marty Stu characters that people often kind of rag on for being these wish fulfillment characters or these, the uh, recent, um, recent movie from the uh, Ernest Klein book, Ready Player One, which people will kind of roll their mm. eyes at it being like way self-indulgent and maybe a little bit mm. more than was necessary. Well, there are definitely, there are boundaries. <laughs> but yeah, there there is an aspect of it that does kind of humanize the creation in a way that sometimes works of fiction, that the really impeccably written works of fiction that stick to their fiction, uh, that you read a lot in the uh, classics do this a lot where it feels like a history account and mm -hmm. it, it feels like the author is removed as if they're just kind of telling a story of something that actually happened giving you a glimpse back in a moment in history and uh, i think there's certainly a time and a place for both it's tricky too because I, I come up against this a lot because i i do a lot of work for brands mm-hmm and so they'll commission me to make short videos for them or to make illustrated work for them. And uh, this is basically something that I come up against all the time because I always want to put as much of myself into that work as possible to try and make it different from all the other work that's out there. Mm, yeah. But uh, generally, I've discovered that the larger the brand I work for, the less they actually want of the stuff that makes it unique. And everything just ends up getting a little bit watered down. This isn't always the case, but I've noticed it's been the case a little bit lately. And whenever I have to make revisions or edits for that type of commission work, it's usually my favorite stuff that they're asking me to remove. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The more people that have to approve something, the more kind of mm -hmm. you know, regression towards the mean it becomes. Well, anyways, let's listen to this song. This is Whale Shark by A Shell in the Pit from Rogue Legacy.
We're coming back with another request from the forum. This is Beck, who says, I've been playing Persona 5 recently and have fallen head over heels for it. I keep finding myself humming the track titled Willpower, which plays when one of the team's personas awaken. Riff on. This is, of course, Willpower by Shoji Meguru from Persona 5. And uh, this is also... (laughs) a JRPG that's set in a, you know, kind of modern day, everyday setting. Of course, it goes to more fantastical places, uh, just like Earthbound does as well, of course. But uh, um, have you uh, experimented with the Persona series? Because it seems to kind of hit on a lot of those things that you liked about Earthbound. I know. I've, I've heard good things about the Persona series for years, and I've just, I've never gotten into it. It's for PS4, right? Persona 5? Yeah, uh, Persona 5 is on PS4 and PS3, actually, uh, many years after people stopped releasing games on the system, I think because they had originally promised the game on PS3 and didn't want to uh, go back on their word there. Since my serious renewed interest in gaming over the past couple of years, I've been wondering if I should get a new PlayStation. But the last PlayStation I had was a PlayStation 2. I'm not quite sold yet. I, I feel like if I go down that rabbit hole, I'm just going to have such a backlog of things to play that I'm never going to leave my apartment again. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Uh <laughs> And I've also heard the Persona games are incredibly long, right? Ah, that's the thing about RPGs is that there's a lot to get out of them. And spending that amount of time with the characters does get you feeling really kind of close and attached to them in a way that you don't get when you're just kind of blazing through even a really well-written game like Celeste. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. I just don't feel as close to those characters as I do to my uh, protagonist in uh, Yakuza Zero, for instance, because sure. of the you know just the difference in genre, different in, difference in pace. Um, but uh, yeah, Persona Five has been getting um, a little bit more mixed opinions than the previous two Persona games, but still pretty resoundingly positive overall. And uh, one of the soundtrack is one of the aspects of the series that has kind of remained a fan favorite over uh, many many entries now. Uh, including a lot of the spinoffs. So I guess we'll go ahead and listen to Willpower. This is by Shoji Meguru from Persona 5.
have a little bit more JRPG music here. This is another Super Nintendo piece. Do you want to introduce us to, again, this very famous piece of music? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's from Chrono Trigger, and it's the lovely theme that plays when you first go back in time to 600 AD. What always just really hit me about this track was it's just so melancholy and just mm. unabashedly so. And uh, you just kind of, you sort of sense the loss and the separation from, of the main characters from like the place they were supposed to be. And they've been displaced. And I remember playing it as a kid and I would just leave when you're on the world map, I would just leave this music playing and bustle around the house and do other things and just listen to it. I loved it so much. This is a really interesting song because it definitely does have that um, melancholy, nostalgic feel like you were talking about. But I always feel like whenever I hear this song, I interpret it entirely differently depending on like my mood of that day. And like half the time I hear it as like a sad, melancholy piece. And half the time I hear it as like a really hopeful piece that's almost has like a childlike innocence to it. And sure. it, like it, it feels like a different piece of music depending on my mood. And I can't explain it, but it's, it's, it's a very robust piece of music. Whenever it swells with those strings and things, it's, it can be very positive and uplifting for sure. I like a game that, uh, or a piece of music especially, that crafts a lot of uh, an emotional journey into its notes. Anyways, this is Yearnings of the Wind by Yasunori Mitsuda from Chrono Trigger.
We have one piece of music to listen to today still. But before we do that, I would like to remind everyone to venture over to our forum at canerince.com slash forum, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at caneandrince to request songs for future Sounds of Play. We have played three community picks on this show, and we will continue to play community picks. We have a very, very long playlist, but sometimes we select from the old ones, sometimes we select from the new ones, so don't feel like you're jumping straight to the end of the queue. You might just end up on the very next show. Who knows? Uh, anyways, I would like to thank our guest case today. Would you like to uh, direct our listeners to any of your work? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks a lot, Ryan, for having me on. This is really oh, fun. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, if people want to check out what I do, I have, uh, you can check out my two Instagram accounts. One of them is just WCJERN, WCJERN. And that's more of my personal work, a lot of stuff that I show in gallery shows and things like that. And I have another account, it's off underscore foot. And that's more of my commissioned animation work and a lot of stuff that I've made for sports teams and the soccer world, actually. Does that include your animation work? It's been a long time since I've been on Instagram. I don't know if they <laughs> allow for videos and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, you can you can post something up to a minute now okay. on Instagram. So I post I post a mix of animated stuff, some looping animations, and then still work as well on Instagram. Very nice. Thank you for for coming on the show. It's been really interesting talking to you. Uh, I always really like to learn from artists. You know, I've always had a an interest in the arts, but never the like raw talent to actually make anything meaningful. The last track that we have for today is a piece from Lawbreakers. And this was a piece of music that I discovered as I was putting together the end of the year um, 2017 medley of, of music, of video game music, which you can find on our YouTube channel. And also as uh, the, I guess, I don't remember what sound of play number it would have been, but just whatever the last one was in the year 2017, it'll be a long, I think like 40 minute, uh, medley of video game music from that year. And in the process of putting that all together, I listened to a lot of video game music from 2017 and discovered quite a few new favorites, including this piece of music. This was composed by Mick Gordon. The entire Lawbreaker soundtrack is, uh, it feels like a um, curated uh, playlist instead of a dedicated soundtrack because there's so many composers uh, most of them just recording or, or writing one piece of music and in this case this song faust by mick gordon feels like an extension of mick gordon's previous doom 2016 soundtrack uh, it's like the lost doom track and it rocks just about as hard as that soundtrack does. You know, it's just hard to uh, hard to turn down more of Doom music. So I really like Mick Gordon's particular mix of electronic and metal, uh, taking the instrumentation of the metal music and the power of that music and distorting it, breaking it, and adding almost a like a biological element uh, to the the music you know, in a way that it almost feels alive. It almost feels like it can feel pain and express emotions and cry out. And it's just, it's very dramatic and uh, very powerful. Um, and 
yeah, this, this piece of music shows that off really well as well. It's a very simple uh, riff that's played upon in many different ways, uh, just like uh, Mick did on the uh, Doom soundtrack as well. And uh, I just think it's a very effective piece to end on. So let us listen to Faust from Lawbreakers, and we'll catch you next week. 